0: Um, So I'm going to try to speak slowly today. I know it's going very quickly last time. So what I want to do today is really just go through and kind of give a quick reading of the third chapter of Anti-Oedipus, which simply is going through these three types of social formations, the primitives, the barbarians, and then capitalism, which are forms of associates, as they say, that code, primitive societies code things, states bring about an overcoding, of the primitive codes, and capitalism is this vast effort at decoding. So it's a history of the coding and decoding of flows, essentially, that they're trying to lay out here. So we've kind of gotten the theoretical background last time, hopefully, and now it's a slightly more narrative story of what happens with these three social formations. It's also, I should say, a kind of deduction of concepts for Deleuze, because he, he does this all the time, begins with a concept and just deduces things from it. And so the concept he begins with in this chapter is uh, the Earth, la Terre. Uh, because the Earth is the body without organs, as he puts it, of the pr- a primitive society. I will say a word about body without organs because people have been asking about it, because the Earth For primitive society, it's not the soil, it's not the ground, which is the true source of all production. Things come out of the ground. But the earth is something like Mother Earth. It's something that is itself produced by the society, but it's produced as something unengendered. It's as if this is the body upon which all the organs of the primitive culture are attached and inscribed. So it's expressed in myth, it's something like religion, but earth is something like Mother Earth. It's as if... Everything comes from Mother Earth, even though that's not exactly the case. So he says it's a kind of fetish. It's a kind of inversion of the real relations of things. There's real relations of production. The Earth is something that's produced. In a sense, one says in the history of religions, uh, gods are something humans produce. We produce gods. That's something we do. That's something every culture does. But we produce gods as if they were the thing that produced us. And that's what the body without organs is for Deleuze in every social formation. It's something that is, as they say, folded back over the real forces of production. And everything acts as if everything has been derived from Mother Earth. So that's where they begin here with this idea of the Earth. Uh, And the expression of the Earth, they say, is given most often in myth, because myth is where you get, in both primitive and despotic cultures, this image of uh, a state of purely decoded flows. It's before the cosmos, there's chaos. I've read this recently, This curious thing about the, uh, what is it, the cosmological argument for the existence of God, that um, in order to explain the fact that there's order in the world, you have to posit the existence of a God who created this order. But the fact is, there's no place in the cosmos that is not completely and totally ordered. If I find an order that seems chaotic to me, it's simply an order I don't understand, or an order whose principle escapes me. But I can say that my apartment is really disordered because clothes are lying all around and the dirty dishes in the sink. But the clothes are exactly where I dropped them. The dishes are exactly where I put them. The mold and bacteria on the dishes are growing exactly as they're supposed to grow. There's complete, total order everywhere. There's not a space in the universe that gives us any instance of of chaos. Bergson has a great essay on this, that we've actually inverted the real order. The surprising thing is not that there's order rather than chaos, the surprising thing is that we don't find chaos anywhere. So this is sort of Deleuze's point about myth. What does myth express when it talks about chaos? In the beginning there was the formless and the void. He says it's the image, it's the imaginary image any society has of this state of purely decoded flows. It's the horror, it's the nightmare that it has to avoid. And the myth gives the story of how in the beginning there were decoded flows, and then our God did this, and then we came into existence. And so everything then becomes inscribed on the earth, because it's the earth that maintains the society in this state where the decoded flows are prevented from uh, from running free. So this is the starting point, this notion of the earth, which is this sort of matrix of what Deleuze at one point calls the uh, intense germinal implex, <laughs> where there's no distinction between persons when it comes... It's a pure flow, no distinction between sexes, and then there's a story of how the gods came to be, and they get distinguished, and they have personalities, and that engenders the world. Uh, second concept that comes out of the earth, the terre, then, is a territory. Once a society is produced, a primitive society, out of the earth, this intensive state, then you get a territory. And then derived from this term of territories, of course, these two processes of deterritorialization—what happens when the, de- the territory starts running free—and reterritorialization. Uh, so someone is asking about this as well. I'm not quite sure the answer. What's the difference between decoding and deterritorialization? But in my mind, at least, decoding, recoding, obviously happens along these lines of codes, and territory, deterritorialization, reterritorialization happens along the line of flows. So flows get. Territorialized and then they get deterritorialized. They're actually one and the same thing because flow and code are really reciprocally determined. But he still uses a different language to talk about flows that are deterritorialized and codes that get um, that get uh, decoded. So the first machine that they talk about then is this territorial machine, which is how they talk about uh, primitive societies, which is a bit of a misnomer, they say, because uh, territory should not be taken to understand some sort of geographic organization of the earth as such, like marking out a territory, fencing things in. That's really going to happen with the state, which striates space in a particular way. The territory, in this sense, simply on the surface of the earth, organizes the people in a particular way. And that's why uh, they focus in this section, and ethnologists focus uh, in their studies, on what they call kinship relations. Because territorial uh, societies, they say, are organized. Social reproduction is the same as biological reproduction. It's not going to be uh, uh, true in the capitalist formation, because the family, what's important in, in capitalism, is that money begets money. In primitive societies, in state formations, you have what's interesting, who beget who, X beget Y. And you have a a kinship structure that uh, operates along these two axes of what Deleuze and Guattari call alliance and filiation. Filiation simply means X begets Y. It's a biological category. I'm the son of my mother and father. But the condition under which any biological filiation takes place is what they call alliance, my mother and father got married, had sex, had me. Alliance is not a biological category, it's an economic and social category. The question is always, who are you going to marry? Who can you marry? (laughs) Uh, And that's the question of kinship uh, relations in primitive societies, operating along these two axes of um, uh, affiliation and alliance. And this is why Deleuze is interested in this question of alliance, because it's a political question of people deciding who gets to marry whom in state formations it's not so much these kinship structures like with us you know affiliation means i know maybe a few generations back my grandparents and my great-grandparents but it doesn't go for me at least much further than that and on alliance side it's maybe my in-laws and you know this far. Well, I haven't been lost because I'm not married. But in uh, in primitive societies, you know, the, the affiliation goes all the way back to your ancestors, and the alliance stretches all across the social field, because the awareness is, the society is constituted by these kinship relations, and one's completely aware of one's position uh, in this in this matrix. Uh, in, in state formations, that those relations of alliance and affiliation are transferred to the despot, because that becomes important. Who the despot is related to? Who is Henry VIII married to? Why does he have six wives? <laughs> because it's creating alliances now between the monarchies and the great states of of Europe. Uh, and it's still the question: Who can you marry? Who are you allowed to marry? So Henry VIII, you know, breaks with the Catholic Church and creates the Anglican Church just so he can marry someone. That's how important the question is: Who can you marry? What are the conditions under which you can you can marry someone? What happens with capitalism? Uh, Deleuze says is social production and social reproduction becomes entirely separate from familial or biological production. Because what's important is no longer X begets Y. In a familial sense, uh, it's the fact that in capitalism, it's now money that begets money. And so the relations of alliance and affiliation pass through money, and human reproduction is pushed off to the side. It becomes genuinely private. The family becomes something private. It's no longer the condition under which society reproduces itself. So everything becomes decoded. You can say the sexual revolution uh, is partly because the state which you can privatize. You can do what you want anymore. It's no longer a political category, who you marry, who you have relationships with, who you go out with nor is it a public matter of what you do with your body, how you inscribe your body, you can scarify, tattoo, that's no longer a social thing anymore. It was in primitive societies. It's no longer anymore. Everything has become privatized because the relations of alliance and affiliation now pass through money. The important thing is capital begets capital. So we're all shunted off to the side. Um, so I just want to say a word or two then uh, quickly about how, how the notion of code then works in primitive societies, and then move on to s- the state and... Um, uh, capitalism. In primitive societies, Deleuze says, there's a flow of women by virtue of a code. So women are presented under the form of a flow, elevating something to the status of a flow or the coefficient of a flow is itself a social operation. To say that this flow gets coded means that something in the flow is allowed to pass through, which are permitted marriages. Something in that flow is blocked, which are forbidden marriages, namely incest, like there's certain people you cannot marry. And then there are something or some people who permit or block the flow, which he calls the interceptors of these flows. So these are the three fundamental aspects, De says, of the primitive code, how things get coded in primitive societies. And he has a little debate going on here with Levi-Strauss. Because Levi-Strauss, who did the first great studies of kinship uh, relations, thought of kinship structures as a kind of logical combinatory. It's a structure that then gets applied somehow. Um, A person who argued against uh, Levi Strauss, who Deleuze cites as Edmund Leach, he said, no, it's not a logical combinatory. It's not a structure. It's a practice. It's a praxis. Much closer to a physical system than a structure that gets applied. And that's what Deleuze means by flows, material flows that get coded, but it's a physical system that you have to manipulate and strategize about rather than simply applying a kind of pre-given code. So he's using the term code, but it's precisely not um, pre-given. So let me say a word about these three elements. Um, the prohibition of incest, they say, means something is blocked in this flow of women. There are certain marriages that are not going to be allowed, uh, of people that are too close to you. What's allowed to pass through, then, secondly, are initially the first permitted or legal incests because they're people who are you're close to that you still are allowed to marry, although in most societies they're rarely practiced, in fact, because they're still too close uh, to what is blocked. But in this case, a kind of extraction or selection is made from the flow. And then finally, they, they say they're the interceptors, who are the people in charge of arranging or machining or assembling uh, the marriages. These are the ones who either block the flow or who allow the flow to pass. In most societies, these are men were groups of men. In matrilineal societies, it's usually the maternal uncle who arranges the marriages. These are what Deleuze calls the great coders, or he also calls them the great perverts, a kind of normal (laughs) perversion. Um, And they make this point that marriage is less, they say, an alliance between a man and a woman, but a transaction that takes place between men concerning women. So at the bottom of marriage, there's what they said, there's a kind of fundamental homosexual motivation. It's through women in primitive societies that men establish relations among themselves. So there's a quote from 165. Wherever men meet and assemble to take wives for themselves, to negotiate for them, to share them, etc., one recognizes the perverse tie of a primary homosexuality between local groups, between brothers-in-law, co-husbands, childhood partners, etc. So it's the men who function and arrange these flows as the interceptors of these flows. So these are the three elements in a code for Deleuze. There's a flow, there's something in a flow of desire that's allowed to pass, something is blocked, and then they're the interceptors here that affect this blockage or affect... Uh, this passage. Now, the upshot of this analysis for them is to answer that question, whom shall I marry? Is that in fact and in practice in any primitive society? It's no different than our society. No one knows who they're supposed to marry ahead of time, ever. (laughs) It's the same question we have, like, who should you go out with? So to say it's coded doesn't mean that anything is given uh, in advance. That's why Nietzsche says it's not a structure that's pre-given, it's a practice. It's a strategy. You have to figure out who you are allowed to marry. Each decision, each marriage, they say, must be seen as a kind of detachment from the previous code. So that every marriage is something new. It's an alteration in the previous code. It's a step in a new direction, and it's taking up a flow in a new way. So every activity of coding, they say, is literally the production of the new. So far from the code being something pre-given, the code and flow are something that are constantly, ceaselessly renewed at all time, with every alliance, with every marriage. And you can see this very... Delosian it's the production of difference, This is a social way of thinking about that. Every coding is the production of something new, so the code is by nature open-ended, it's polyvocal, it's never given in advance, no one knows ahead of time who they're going to marry. Every selection from the flow implies a detachment from the previous code, and it produces uh, something new. So, as, as, as I said, kinship rules in primitive societies are neither applied nor applicable to real marriages, not because the rules are ideal, but rather because they determine critical points where the apparatus starts up again and produces something new. So there are four points I want to make uh, about this uh, very quickly. But when they use the term machine and a social machine, they define a machine as something that cuts into the flows. That's their definition of what a machine is, which means it has two powers or two characteristics, any social machine. On the one hand, there's the power of the continuum. There's this idea, at least, of the continuity of a flow, the continuity of a flux. But at the same time, there's always a break in that flux, a cut into that flux, so that their fundamental notion when they talk about codes is the break flow. There's a fundamental break in the flow. The machine breaks into the flow, codes it and extract something from it. And then you get your, uh, your marriage. But there's a... It's Deleuze's theory of ideas again. There's an idea of this pure continuity of a flow, which is never given as such. All that's given to us are the cuts from the flow, the particular marriages. The only place where we get the image of this ideal flux, this ideal continuity, is in myth for current society. So it's myth that gives us the intensive conditions of the system, but all we get in reality is the territory where these flows have been extracted and they produce the society at hand which is territorialized. second point is this, which they're going to be repeating throughout this chapter. A social machine functions well, they say, only on the condition of continually breaking down and continually not functioning well, because no one knows in advance who to marry ever. It's a constant tension, it's a constant struggle, it doesn't function smoothly, but that's the condition under which the machine is functioning well. And I'll get to this one in a second when we talk about uh, capitalism, but this is one of the, one of their dis- disagreements with Marx, because Marx, being a good dialectician, said that capitalism is a dialectical structure. At bottom, it operates on the basis of the fundamental contradiction. The contradiction is between the capitalist and the proletariat, and eventually, uh, the capitalist system, which was going to reach, you know, an increasing point of, of you know, fibrillation, like a heart going out of uh, control, where the system would finally break down and lead to the next stage, which would be a kind of fully humanized communism. So what was going to cause that was a big breakdown in the system. Deleuze and Guitart reject that thesis completely and totally outright, because they say nothing ever, anywhere, at any time, has ever died from (laughs) contradictions. Every social formation feeds on its own contradictions. It feeds on its constant misfirings. It feeds on its constant breakdowns. It only works in fits and starts. So far from being the thing that's going to destroy any social formation, contradiction is the food upon which it feeds. So it's a constant theme of what they put forward in this book. Social machines function well, only on the condition that they're constantly breaking down. So the constant recessions, depressions, booms and busts in capitalism aren't signs of its misfirings. So they're signs of just how the machine is functioning and functioning well. It functions well by constantly breaking down. Primitive societies function well by constantly breaking down because no one really knows what to do. No one knows who to marry. No one knows how to code the next thing that's coming down the pike. Um, Third point, uh, what introduces this fundamental disequilibrium, especially in primitive societies, is precisely this notion of debt. It's debt that keeps the system in the state of disequilibrium, because a relationship of debt is always asymmetrical. It's always in disequilibrium. There's a creditor and a debtor, and that introduces Instability. So every marriage in primitive societies entails the giving of gifts or dowries that serve as equivalents for women uh, and which determine the ranks, then, of both the receivers of the flow and the givers of wives. So every detachment from the code produces a difference in status between affiliative lines, marked by the surplus that people are accumulating as a result of these alliances and marriages. So that constantly is introducing a kind of fundamental disequilibrium. And I want to get back to this, too, because then the way power is maintained in primitive societies is often by giving away the surplus value that you've attained. Marcel Mauss has these great analyses of, in the northwest coast, Indians of what he calls the potlatch, of people who gain uh, like chiefs, you gain a lot of power because they have a lot of surplus value, but the only way they're allowed to maintain that power is to have these festivals where they give away everything that they own. And in exchange for giving away their economic power, they get in return a kind of prestige that allows them to maintain their status as a chief. But they've lost their economic status as a sort of leader in the societies, which is something I want to, uh, I want to get back to as well, is that primitive societies, their Lisemeterre, suggest, have these mechanisms in place that prevent the establishment of a state, or in other words, that prevent the kind of uh, convergence of power in a single person like the chief. The potlatch is a way to say, in order for you to maintain power as a chief, you have to give up your power, which is another mechanism of disequilibrium. And the fourth point uh, about these primitive societies is that the code is unconscious, It's not that people aren't deliberating and thinking of what to do, but it's simply uh, the movement of desire itself. So this is um, a quote, uh, actually from an interview, just to say why they consider this a theory of desire. Desiring consists in interruptions, letting certain flows through, making withdrawals from those flows, cutting the chains that become attached to those flows. This system of the unconscious, where desire that flows, interrupts, begins flowing again, they say, it is totally literal, which is another thing in this book. He hates metaphor. Nothing in this book is metaphorical. This is a literal description of how desire operates. It's not a metaphor. It's not an idea in your head. It's a physical system. The unconscious is matter itself. There are flows. There are flows of women. There are signifying chains that get... Uh, that are used to code these flows. It's a physical system. It's all literal. And contrary to what traditional psychoanalysis tells us, it is perfectly meaningless. Without any sense, there is nothing to interpret. Interpretation is meaningless here. The problem is to know how the unconscious works, knowing how the desiring machines work, knowing how to use those machines. So they say the fundamental question to ask about desire or about flows and codes is how do they work? And never, what does it mean? You simply ask how they function together, because there's absolutely no point at which meaning enters the picture uh, for them. All right, so one final point then about primitive societies. There's a lot else to say here, but um, it has to do with the question of power, in Foucault's sense. But today's desire is a much more basic thing to consider than power. Power is such to desire. But one can still ask the question, how is power organized? in primitive societies, and the answer is that, it oscillates between two poles, between fusion, where power would be defined by my group in opposition to other groups, and then by some resonance of power, some center of power in my little group, or scission, where the group is torn apart because some line, some lineage goes off and, and starts its own tribe somewhere else. To either fusion of power or scission of power. Um, and the reason they want to define things this way is they have this thesis that every social formation has a kind of pre-sentiment from the inside of its own destruction, which is precisely the sphere of a decoded flow, something that, if it happened, would undo the functioning of the society. And primitive societies have a fear of two things, they say, or they have a sense of two things that would fundamentally destroy them. One would be fusion, which would turn a primitive society into a state. And primitive societies have often been characterized as societies without a state, And that's often been uh, put forward as a kind of negative characterization. They're simply not advanced enough in the evolutionary process that we begin with hunter-gatherers and then finally be a little more civilized and then we get uh, states. Uh, And they disagree with that, and they appeal to the work of a French ethnologist called Pierre Clastres, who wrote a book called Society Against the State. Far from being a negative characterization of primitive societies, he says this is actually... Uh, a positive connotation, because it says that primitive societies are aware of the possibility of a state formation and the convergence of power in someone like a despot, but they have deliberate mechanisms to to ward off the state, and they deliberately do not want to be a state. So it's a positive characterization of primitive societies rather than a negative one. And Klaus analyzes a number of mechanisms of through which this takes place. I'll just mention two of them. One I've already mentioned is this: the potlatch ceremony, where in order to maintain power, a chief has to give away his economic power, and he gets prestige only by giving away his wealth to the members of the community. But in doing that, he becomes something like a celebrity or a, a star. You know, it's like Warhol. You have your 15 minutes of fame. Like You can't sustain that for, for too long. And once your prestige wanes as a chief, it's no problem because there's someone else who's going to have to take your place. The same way celebrities replace celebrities. There's no continuity of a pharaoh or a king or a despot. Power is diffuse. You can maintain it for a while, but not very, very long. And that's a deliberate mechanism to ward off uh, the formation of a, a state apparatus. And war, then, is the second thing that uh, uh, helps prevent that because it dissipates the power of the tribe. And the warrior gains a lot of prestige. That is isn't convertible into the kind of power that one would have in a state formation. Um, So that's their mechanism against too much fusion, becoming something like a state. Um, But an even greater danger, they say, for primitive societies, would be a scission, in which all the possibilities of coding would be uh, suppressed. Such a decoding, they say, in fact, will come to take place in capitalism, which will break the codes, destroy the codes, Uh, But the primitive machine is also aware of this, so it keeps merchants and blacksmiths and anyone who would start some movement toward commerce uh, in a very subordinate and minor position in primitive societies, because it's aware of this other danger that could threaten to destroy it. So on two sides, they say primitive societies have very deliberate mechanisms that prevent a kind of convergence of power in a single person, which would lead it toward the state, but also the development of things like money and exchange and merchant, mercantile relations that would lead it in the direction of capitalism. So it's a way of doing what Levy Strauss did. You know, they use the term "primitive society" here, but that, that seemed to mean these were like hunter-gatherers in a primitive stage of development. And their entire analysis to say is that's not true. It's a fully developed, you know, fully rational, if you might put it that way, uh, social formation that deliberately wards off the state, that deliberately wards off the formation of capitalism. Um, and far from being a kind of primitive, meaning less advanced culture, it's fully developed and it's positive uh, for all those um, those reasons. But it would seem, then, they say that social formations, all of them, experience this kind of morbid uh, foreboding of things to come, as if what's going to destroy them <laughs> Was already operating from within. So that's primitive societies. Now let me turn to, um, to the state form, which is the second uh, uh, formation that they discuss. The two theses that they put forward about uh, the state: two fundamental theses. The first is this: the first thesis that there have been states always and everywhere that the state is not the result of an evolutionary formation where the state would have been produced in progressive stages out of, say, some um, hunter-gatherer society or anything like that. So they're against a kind of evolutionary schema. And the reason for this, the reasons they give, all boil down to this. There have been states always and everywhere. Archaeology confirms this. There's no time in the archaeological studies, where they have found a place where there has not been a massive state and a massive empire, and somewhere not only in Asia, but in Africa, America, Greece, Rome, uh, the state appears on the horizon of history as a fully formed social assemblage. And the second thesis, then, <laughs> that they propose with regard to this, is that because of this, the state is definable. By a consistent concept of its own, there has never been but one state, you <laughs> say, and it has a concept of its own. And at its most general level, the way to describe the concept of the state is that it is an apparatus of capture. So that's the title of that uh, last plateau and middle plateau, which operates through processes of overcoding, deterritorialization, stratification, unification, totalization, integration. But every state, everywhere, at all times, has been an apparatus of capture. So, that being said, that's what makes Delos hard to read sometimes, uh, the concept will have its own internal mutations. And so, essentially, they're going to analyze three, while at the same time maintaining that there's only one state, and that every state... Ha- uh, follows the consistency of this concept. There's nonetheless an internal mutation in the concept because the state begins in archaic times by being this vast machine of transcendence. It's this vast apparatus, this mega machine that comes to overcode the primitive societies, which are still functioning and humming away down here. But then you get a state that comes, takes these codes, allows them to persist, but overcodes them. It makes everything come into the vaults of the pharaoh, of the king, of the despot. So it's this huge mechanism, they say, of transcendence. The state is the introduction of transcendence into the imminent movements of the primitive codes and the primitive territorial um, uh, regimes. By the time we get to capitalism, there's still a state, it's still functioning on this model of capture, but now it's the market. And capital, that has become that covers the entire social field. So by the time you get to capitalism, states have a different function. They are purely imminent to the capitalist machine. And so they lose their status as a sort of transcendent overcoat and simply become modulations within the capitalist formation. They're regulators of capital in this imminent machine and are no longer transcendent. So there's, at the same time, one concept for the state, It's an apparatus of capture, whether it's capturing these primitive, coded societies and making them resonate with the pharaoh, or whether it's an apparatus of capture that's trying to regulate the flows of capital. So how that capturing takes place changes enormously, how one captures the codes. But nonetheless, they're going to insist, there's never been but one state. There's that little section here called the Urstadt which they play on, you know, the, the German word, but it's also the city of Ur that Abraham came from. There's never been but one state with one uh, concept, even though they're going to trace out a mutation in the state forms. So uh, I'm going to look at this mutation in three things. The transcendent state these in between things that lead to capitalism, and then what happens to the state when we get to the capitalist formation. Um, so the first type of state is what they call the barbarian despotic Machine, which is this thing that comes to be imposed on the primitive territorial machines and overcodes them. Uh, There are three things they say about how this overcoding works. I've already said one the archaic state is a deterritorialization that functions by means of transcendence, it's a transcendent entity that is imposed upon uh, the territories. a second way to describe this, which uh, doesn't appear until a thousand plateaus, is to say that one of the fundamental tasks of the state is to striate the space over which it reigns. Whereas next time we get to talk about the war machine, they say the war machine doesn't striate space, it simply occupies and holds a smooth space. So Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, they don't create states. They're working on the desert and in the steppe, and they 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 constitute a war machine there, but that simply occupies a smooth space and fills that space. Whereas a state is something that striates the space that it has under its control. It introduces fences and properties and lots and roads. It builds dikes and dams for the water to control the flow of water. I mean, every time you fly, just look down. (laughs) And there's the land, and then you see all the striations that the state has put upon it. You see the roads and the towns. That's an apparatus of capture. Right? take the processes of production and uh, striate them. But the most important one, so there's this element of transcendence. There's this activity of striation, which we'll talk a little bit about, more about next time. Um, but most importantly, they say the primary mechanism of capture for the state is deterritorialization. The state is something that fundamentally deterritorializes. Now that seems to be a kind of paradoxical uh, description because often they say states have been defined by an act of territoriality that kind of fixes a central point. You have a capital city uh, with a palace or a temple where the king lives or the pharaoh lives, who's the son of the god, and the capital becomes the center around which the cosmos is organized. So it seems to be territorial to the nth degree. But deleuze suggests that this is really a kind of pseudo- territoriality, because the power of the stake functions only as a result of a massive deterritorialization of these primitive uh, machines. Instead of these extended filiations and lateral alliances that you have in the territorial communities, we now have a direct filiation of the despot with his God, and then we have a new alliance that says, not between men and women creating marriages, but with the people as a whole, to the despot or to the Pharaoh. So all these communities now are aligned with the despot, and then the despot himself is descended from the God. So it's a new type of myth. Imperial myths, state myths, are very different from primitive myths. Like Genesis 1 and 2, you could say Genesis 1 is a state myth, where God says, let there be light. It's a despot just decreeing how the cosmos is going to be organized. Whereas Genesis 2 it's the Garden of Eden. It's a territory that you know, Adam and Eve are put in and then they're kicked out of the territory. They're two very different myths of creation. The first one is state, the second is um, is territorial. So all the debts, these mobile debts that operate in primitive societies, and we've talked a bit a little about this last time, are turned into this infinite debt that one owes to the state always and constantly. Deleuze um, and on this point of deterritorialization uh, use uh, Marx's analyses in Volume 3 of Capital. This is actually a Marxist uh, interpretation on forms of rent. This is in Volume 3, Part 6. But just to give you an example of what uh, how this deterritorialization works, there are three, three places where it happens primarily. I just want to go through this quickly because they, they go through this in a lot of detail in the apparatus of capture uh, chapter. Um, money, land, and labor three ways in which the, this deterritorialization is affected uh, by the state is essentially, in order for the state to get its scrubby paws into the, de-ter- into the codes of uh, the primitive machines, it has to deterritorialize their code, has to decode their codes, introduce a kind of flow that the state can then get its hands into and appropriate. That's how it overcodes. It sets loose the flows that were already coded in the primitive societies, decodes them enough deterritorializes them enough, sets a flow in movement so that it can get its hands into that flow and appropriate it for itself, and put some of that flow in the form of surplus or stock into the treasury of the despot. So we've already seen one of these mechanisms, which is money. Money is introduced by states, not as a means of encouraging commerce, but as a means of controlling and regulating commerce. So whereas primitive societies operate in terms of barter, direct exchange between objects, you introduce money, that's a flow, it's a general equivalent that takes place between two objects. But by introducing that flow, the state can get its hands into a portion of that flow in the form of taxes, and take that money and put it into the coffers of the state. Uh, first point. Something similar, second, uh, takes place with regard to land, or the earth, This there's the question that states have. How do they appropriate? the power and force of the earth, which this is a body without organs of uh, primitive societies. And money functions in the same way. You get rent from, from the land, and you appropriate the land in the form of a surplus. And I have a long analysis of how uh, this works as well, which I don't want to get into. The third one, though, I think is, is a little more interesting, is there, there's an appropriation of activity in the form of surplus labor which goes into the construction of large-scale public works projects, like the Great Pyramids or the Great Wall of China. And on this, Deleuze and Gattari have, I think, some interesting things to say because about the concept of work. Because in primitive societies, they say generally, or it's been often said, in primitive societies, people do not, strictly speaking, work, even if their activities are very constrained and regulated. The man of war, the warrior, does not work either. <laughs> Um, It seems true, they say, and this has always seemed interesting to me, that in North America, Native Americans had no understanding of and were unsuited for any organization of work, even slavery. Uh, They would rather die than work, which is why they did not become slaves. Like They were not suited to uh, work. In order for there to be work... Then, strictly speaking, Deleuze and Guattari say there must be a capture of activity by a state apparatus, or by some a flow. the flow of labor has to be taken up somewhere else, and that's what constitutes work—not simply my activity, activity of laboring uh, on my own, because it's only in the state that activity comes to be compared, linked, and subordinated to a common and homogeneous quantity that is called labor. Primitive groups we under a regime of what Marshall Grew has called simply free action or activity in continuous variation. That excluded any kind of stockpiling, any extraction from that flow of labor of something other than that labor. The minute you extract from work a surplus labor, then you have work, strictly speaking. Up to that point, you simply have uh, free action. So that's precisely, uh, they claim, Marx claims, what the state introduces. There's no conception of labor strictly speaking, until there's also a conception of surplus labor. In primitive societies, there's no work because there's this free action, there's this activity people are undertaking. The minute you have this notion of labor, that means I will labor up to a certain point on my own, but at a certain point, a part of my labor, probably often a good part of my labor, has to go to the state. So that's a decoding, a deterritorialization of labor in the form, or of work or activity in the form of a conception of labor, because until you have that, uh, you can 't extract from that labor a surplus that's going to go to the state, and apart from that, you have no pyramids, you have no great Wall of China, which is a way of extracting right from this flow of labor a certain surplus that's going to go into the service of of the um, of the state so this is why I think the state is the first activity of deterritorialization in history in order for the state to function, it has to overcoat the primitive societies, but can only do that by setting loose a certain number of flows. Through a flow of money, it gets its hands on commerce. Through a flow of labor, it extracts that surplus labor and uses it toward its own ends. And all these now deterritorialized flows are made to resonance, resonate or converge in the person of the despot and the God of which he is the Son. So this is why then the despot, they say, becomes the body without organs, of the despotic state. It's as if everything is descended from the despot, comes from the despot, and from his God. It becomes the new body without organs upon which everything gets inscribed and regulated. It's not really the case that everything comes from the despot, but it's as if everything is made to converge. On him or her. This is a variation of what Foucault says, I think, and I'm not sure who got it from whom, when he talks about the distinction between governmentality and the state, that there's a way of governing children, governing the infirm, governing the mad, and that's a kind of micro politics, and the state is simply a means of integrating or stratifying these various forms of government. It's exactly how Deleuze and Guattari conceive of the state. There's a micro politics happening that the state makes. It stratifies, it integrates, a whole host of micro-political um, operations. Um, and so they say in, it's no longer a system of cruelty in these uh, archaic states, but what they call a system of terror, right, which rains down uh, from above, from this transcendent uh, domain. So it's going to say a few things about infinite debt, and then how Christianity spiritualized infinite debt, but I think we talked about that last time and don't need to repeat it, because it's no longer these finite blocks of debt that I have, say, when I arrange a marriage, now I have this continuous debt to the state in the form of taxes, in in the form of surplus labor that I owe to the state. It's a debt that I will never finish paying off to the state. In Christianity, I say, just takes that up and spiritualizes it. It's a debt now to God, to the God of the despot, to whom I owe an infinite debt, and I can never pay off that debt to God, so God has to pay it off for me by dying himself. All these come from the despotic formation. That's a Nietzschean idea. There's always a monotheism on the horizon of every despotism. And it's an interesting question, why monotheism arises there too. You know, some people say, well, it's a, you know advanced form of the religious sensibility. Nietzsche says, no, it's the opposite. Because what are religions? What are the gods? Gods are something we produce all the time. We produce gods, like we produce shampoo, and cars, and schizophrenics, as Lewis and Gattari say. Um, but Nietzsche says, what are the gods that we produce? Well, they're simply, for him, reflections of the drives. You have a god of war, you have a god of blood. They're simply figures, incarnations of the multiplicity of the drives. Uh, so Nietzsche's question is, uh, if the gods are simply reflections of the drives, incarnations of, of, of the drives, What could possibly have happened to the point where the multiplicity of drives is reduced to one drive? It simply means that some drive somewhere has become dominant to the exclusion of all the others, to the point where one creates only one God that reflects this one drive that somehow has become dominant over all the others. So far from being an advanced form of religion, Nietzsche thought monotheism was a deterioration of the religious sensibility. And of course, his answer of what became the dominant drive in the monotheistic religions was resentment. <laughs> you know, it's the drive that gets expressed in, um, in monotheism, which means you know, resentment against the world, because the world causes me to suffer and I don't like to suffer, and so someone has to blame for that. But that's this movement toward transcendence that begins uh, Nietzsche thinks as well with the state formation and, uh, and despotism. But that's the state, then, very briefly. It's a territory, in a way, organized around a capital and a center and the palace where the king lives and the monarch is and the god that serves as their legitimation and justification. But how it operates, how it functions, is through this vast operation of deterritorialization that sets loose certain flows that it can then capture for itself. And then this leads to this second form of the state, because you can see where this would introduce an internal mutation in the state form and a big problem for these archaic states. And you can see where this is going to lead toward capitalism, because the archaic state cannot overcode and capture what's going on in these primitive societies without at the same time freeing up a large quantity of decoded flows that escape from it. Because if the very condition of the operation of the state is to de-territorialize and decode flows so that it can capture their surplus for itself, it means at the same time it decodes flows that it is no longer capable of controlling and capturing for itself. They start to flee uh, from the capture of the state and elude its control. Uh, and this is going to be the second great movement of ter- deterritorialization that leads to the formation of capitalism. But it's the states, Deleuze and Guattari say, that set loose this movement, this initial movement of deterritorialization. And you can see um, where this happens. There is an appropriation of territory and the earth in the form of ground rent that all comes to the state. But this will slowly become a decoded flow that turns into private property where people own property that doesn't necessarily belong to the coffers uh, of the state. Uh, There's an activity of work that's appropriated by the state in these large-scale public works, but that produces a flow of independent labor that increasingly is going to escape from the control of the states, notably in merchants or in the mines, because in order for the state to function, it has to have metallurgy and people go off from the state to find ore and stuff in the mines. It's a flow of labor that starts moving in all directions and that eludes uh, state control. And then, of course, money. Uh, It's a monetary flow that the state uses uh, in the form of tax, but that assumes an autonomy of its own uh, that the state doesn't control. So there are flows of money, flows of labor, flows of property, flows of population that the state sets loose without necessarily being able to control. So between these great imperial states and the formation of capital, there's this long mutation of state forms that they just put in this medium (laughs) section, which find more and more ingenious ways for trying to control these flows that the state itself has set loose. And in the middle of the story, they're going to try to say why, at a certain point, these two flows of labor and capital, and this is Marxist thesis, finally conjoin outside of any state apparatus, uh, and it's this conjunction that produces capitalism. These two flows conjugate, and then we have a capitalist formation that eludes finally and completely the control of any state formation anywhere. But it's the state, you know, it's the fault of the state, <laughs> they say, that sets loose these, um, these flows. Um, And some people raise this question, too, uh, that Marx and other people have raised. It's this contingent question of why capitalism happens in Europe uh, rather than somewhere else, say, in 13th century China, or in Rome, or in the Middle Ages, when all the conditions seemed to be present. Like land was decoded in favor of private property, money had become mercantile, Uh, commodity production had taken place. And their answer, to more, of, more or less, to all of these things is that Rome is that they'd somehow find a way of recoding these flows. Rome becomes a regime based on slavery. The Middle Ages turns to feudalism. In China, the state would close the mines as soon as their reserves were judged to be sufficient, which prevented the, uh, the formation of a surplus value, which would be uh, uh, another sort of decoded flow. So they kept the lid in all these other contexts, on these decoded flows, they found ways of recoding them or finding what Deleuze and Victoria called topical conjunctions that somehow kept them in check. So that's their answer, and it's a purely contingent fact, they say, that it happened in Europe at that particular time. Now, I want to just, out of the many analyses they give, I want to look at two examples for two different reasons of this uh, in-between kind of uh, state, between the archaic state and the capitalist state. Uh, and the first is the Greek cities. It's Greece. Um, uh, and for a very obvious reason, because uh also asks the question in a completely different context, and not in these books, it's in what is philosophy, what became the condition of possibility for the formation of philosophy? It's a similar question about capitalism. Why Europe in, say, 13th, 14th century when things started to happen? Why philosophy in Greece? In the third and fourth century BC, what were the conditions under which that was made possible? So he sees these these questions as tied together, and the reason he suggests is that the Greeks, uh, there was still a state formation, but they deterritorialized uh, in a slightly um, uh, in a slightly different way because the Greeks were close enough to the great sort of eastern states, to take advantage of their stockpiled surplus. But they uh, adapted to the surrounding territories uh, in in a way that the Greek cities became a kind of relay point in what they called, and you can see why this is important to them, an imminent network of commercial and maritime circuits. They formed a kind of international market on the border of the Eastern empires, organized into a multiplicity of independent societies in which artisans and merchants found a freedom and a mobility that the imperial states denied to them. In other words, they could benefit from the stockpiles of the Oriental empires without following their model. And this geometric organization of a kind of imminent market was reflected in the internal civic space of the Greek cities, whereas in the Imperial organizations, the space, the spatium of the state, was centered on the royal palace or the temple, which marked the transcendent sovereignty of the despot and his god. The political extensio, they call it, of the Greek city, was modeled on a new type of geometric space, which was famously called isonomia, which organized the polis around a common and public center, the agora, in relation to which all the points occupied by the citizens, of course the wealthy males, um, appeared equal and symmetrical. So there's no longer a despot functioning in the middle of the uh, the state. There's the, there's the agora, there's the agon. As a community of free men or citizens who enter into agonistic relations of rivalry with other free men, exercising their power, exerting claims over each other in a kind of generalized athleticism. So it's a state formation. But rather than having the despot occupy the center, you have an agonistic uh, setup, where all the citizens, in principle at least, the landed citizens, are equal. And according to Deleuze, this is what made philosophy possible, was this milieu of imminence. It's a state inserting itself into an imminent network of maritime and marketing circuits on the external and also, internally, this new space where the citizens themselves, there wasn't a despot at the center, but simply citizens who enter into relationships of rivalry. Which is precisely the difference, then, they say, between a wise man and a philosopher. Because the wise man is the figure of the philosopher, you might say, in imperial formations. He's the person to the right of the king who's giving him wisdom, like what the god says about what you should do, and he has wisdom. He has access to wisdom, that's why he's a wise man. Uh, the philosopher is not a wise man, he's simply a friend of wisdom, but he's not someone who actually possesses wisdom. Why? Because in Greece you have the Agon, you have a collection of rivals, people lay claim to something but they do won't necessarily possess it. Um, so, for instance, you might say the carpenter can lay claim to the wood, like, I'm the friend of the wood, but then he'll clash with the forester or the lumberjack or the joiner who in fact say, well, no, I'm the true friend of the wood. And they say something like this happens in Greece with regard to wisdom, people come along and say, I don't know how have wisdom, but I'm the friend of wisdom. I'm the true friend of wisdom. And then someone else will come along and say, no, I'm the friend of wisdom. And he says this rivalry uh, reaches its apex with the debate between... Uh, Socrates, Plato, and the Sophists, both of whom, say, were philosophers. They're both friends of wisdom, but there's a rivalry between them. And you could say Plato's entire project was to try to find a criterion to say, among all these claimants in the Greek agon, who are rivals laying claim to be the true friends of of wisdom, who is the true... (laughs) friend among all these friends? Like what's the criterion that will say the sophists aren't really true philosophers? And of course the answer for him is going to be the theory of the idea. But the reason he comes up with the theory of the idea is precisely in this imminent context of the Greek cities is to come up with a criterion that's going to distinguish between the true friends of wisdom and those uh, who are not. So it's important for Deleuze to say that philosophy is associated with imminence. But that has a political dimension, because philosophy arises in Greece precisely because it's a state that functions on purely imminent terms. It's an imminent circuit on the outside with other Greek city-states, and it's an imminent structure within that doesn't have a despot at the center, but simply the agora, an agonistic relation between free citizens who are all rivals with each other. And um, I had a second example, which is... um, from a book by George Dubé on the um, Carolingian state at the end of the 10th century, but sort of just an example of what's starting to happen in in Europe to sort of set loose all these flows that lead to capitalism, but I think that'll take um, too much time. So let me turn quickly and at least get started on um, capitalism, because there's much more to say here and much more interesting things. Um, I'll go... Should I take a break now? Yeah, let's take a break now and then stuff in capitalism, and then we'll talk. Okay.